Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this morning and this just awesome time of worship. We say awesome because, Lord, I hope and pray that all of us are just have joy in our hearts for worshiping you. That is kind of the the Lord, the way, Lord, that, that you work, that we, we, we set out to bless you, to honor you, to praise you, and we end up feeling blessed in the process. And we thank you for that. Lord, we, we want you to be glorified. We want your, the name of your Son, Jesus, to be exalted. We want to, through your word, come to know you better to grow closer with your son, to have our minds renewed. Lord, to understand how to put off the sin that dwells in us and to put on righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, your son. We thank you, Lord, for your word and what it will share with us this morning about things in the future and why that's important. Lord, give us just those eyes to see and ears to hear, help us to understand, to interpret well and to apply. We pray this all in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Here are some contenders from a Gospel Coalition article by Joe Carter for the title of Man of Lawlessness. Man of Lawlessness throughout history. One of them would certainly be the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero was a despicable creature who hated Christians, set Rome on fire, blamed the Christians, even was known to use Christians as human torches at his parties. Many biblical scholars believe that the number of the beast in Revelation 13, 18 is a numerical reference to Emperor Nero, whose name in Greek when transliterated into Hebrew, retains the value of 666. I don't know if that's the case or not, but there you go. Another one on this list might be Napoleon. Napoleon, his probable, improbable, excuse me, rise to power, anti-Catholic policies and unquenchable hunger for conquest earned the French emperor his place on the list. Another contender for the man of lawlessness would be, for obvious reasons, Adolf Hitler. Also, the American president makes the list. Every American president since George Washington has likely been suspected of being the one to usher in the end times. (laughs) In the article, the fellow wrote, the one exception to the rule might be Gerald Ford. Despite being a world leader during the height of the 1970s end times craze, it's unlikely anyone ever considered Ford a serious contender. I thought that was funny. The last one I bring you is also a common one throughout history. The Pope. The all-time most popular contender for the title, Man of Lawlessness, was not any individual but an office, the Roman Catholic Papacy. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Cotton Mather, William Tyndale, and a long list of other Protestants have all thought this. I remember reading some notes in a, in a Bible um, that uh, that Luther had had put in there, and yes, indeed, I remember my friend of mine was showing me how uh, he just totally calls out 
the Pope in this regard. But that does not stop from, from assuming that a particular Pope, from Pope Leo X to Benedict XVI to even our current Pope Francis, I shouldn't say our Pope Francis, the Pope Francis, is the man of lawlessness. And indeed, this will be the subject matter of our text this morning, the man of lawlessness. So go ahead in your Bibles, and if you haven't done so already, and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we started in on chapter 2, which had Paul returning to a topic that he had shared about back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, namely the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a time of God's judgment and wrath upon unbelievers that surrounds the return of his son, Jesus. It can be understood in a more general sense, including what will take place during what we call the, or the Bible calls the great tribulation, uh, Jesus's actual return to make war, his great white throne judgment, even his final Judgment that destroys the current heavens and earth can be considered part of the day of the Lord. It can also be understood as a very specific day when, as John reports in Revelation 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And of course, he comes down through the clouds this time to earth. Only context really makes it clear how this phrase, the day of the Lord, is to be understood. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul seems to use it in a more general sense, referring to God's judgment and wrath that occurs after the rapture and applies to unbelievers. Now the rapture again being when Jesus returns to the clouds... But he stays in the clouds. He doesn't actually come to the earth. And he raptures his church. He, he, he harpoons, harpazo, takes his church up, both living and dead, to meet him there. Those that died in Christ, those that became Christians. And remember that the Thessalonians were concerned about their believing loved ones who had died as followers of Christ, that they had somehow missed the rapture. And Paul reminds that before the day of the Lord, the rapture of the dead and living will take place because believers in Jesus are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. I mean, the wrath that God would then um, uh, pass on to the people of the earth and the earth itself. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, the day of the Lord, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, he's now dealing with the Thessalonians' belief that the persecution and afflictions that they were suffering and enduring at that time meant that they were already in the midst of the day of the Lord and maybe had missed even more. Maybe they had actually missed even the return of Jesus. And this is why Paul gets even more specific about the timing and at least a couple of the actual events that lead up to the day of the Lord in order to show them that it had not yet come. This will be our concern for the next few messages. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 to 7. Go ahead and stand for the reading of 
God's word. And, and in this text this morning, I want you to see three preludes to the day of the Lord. Now, this morning, we're only going to get through the first two, the first two, and we'll have to come back to the, the third one when I'm back in a couple of weeks. I'm going to go ahead and begin back here with verse one, just to give us a little running start here. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. Here's the new part of our text this morning. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the first prelude, friends, to the day of the Lord is this. The apostasy must occur the apostasy must occur we look back to verse 3 when paul says let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come meaning the day of the lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and this is our little teaser from last week where we just started to touch on and get into this issue of the apostasy and here is what we Learn apostasia. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. It literally means to depart. In Acts twenty one twenty one, it refers to um, forsaking the law of Moses, departing from the law of Moses. In our text, it is also translated as rebellion or falling away. And this is a common theme throughout Scripture and can be understood in a general sense as people rebelling against or falling away from a religious position or belief that they once held as in to desert one's professed faith. This can be said of people, can be said of churches. We learned a couple of weeks ago about that church of Laodicea In Revelation 3, that was that lukewarm church of which Jesus had nothing good to say about, but rather that he would spit them out of his mouth. And how they don't even know that they are, quote, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, end quote, because they have fallen away. There have been apostate people. Last week I read to you uh, from Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6. This week um, I ask you, go ahead and turn with me. Keep keep your spot there in 2 Thessalonians, but turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Just a little bit to the right there, not too far. 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me. 2 Peter 2 verses 20 to 22. 
Here Peter is speaking about false prophets that have infiltrated the churches that he was writing to. And in fact, in verse 15, he makes reference to Balaam, an Old Testament prophet who sold himself basically to the highest bidder rather than continue in his obedience to God. In verse 17, Peter refers to them as, quote, springs without water and misdriven by a storm, end quote. And then in verses 20 and 22, Peter writes of these people who have seen and tasted of the Lord. He says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. And of course, what we would understand about somebody in this state is that they might have been professing believers, but in reality were not true believers there are several other new testament passages we see that different forms of apostasy will continue and will go on until the end times however paul is not referring to some kind of general apostasy in our text that has been happening throughout the years rather he has a very specific event in mind and we know this for three reasons first because paul is using apostasy as a sort of marker a specific point in time in order to tell the Thessalonians, show the Thessalonians, consequently all of us, that the day of the Lord has not yet happened. It won't happen until the apostasy has occurred. Hence a specific event. Secondly, uh, Paul uses the definite article in the Greek indicating the apostasy, indicating a specific event. And then thirdly, we know Paul has an event in mind because the man of lawlessness is connected to this apostasy so then what is this apostasy paul is referring to what what does he have in mind the bad news is 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 paul actually doesn't give us a lot of details about this apostasy and and you might be thinking well how could he not you know i mean come on paul i mean you can't just throw out terms like apostasy you know and 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 man of lawlessness and then and then not give us some of the details that you know we think we deserve uh Yeah, that's exactly what he does, though. That's exactly what he does. Because of what he says in verse 5. Look there for just a moment. We're back in our text, 2 Thessalonians. And remember verse 5. We touched on it last week. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul's interest at this point is not in re-explaining everything he has already taught them, but adding just what he believed they needed to know at this point in time. <clears throat> so what do we know? What do we know about this apostasy, this rebellion, this falling away? And we know from verse 3 that the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness are linked together. Either this apostasy will be the catalyst to revealing the man of lawlessness, or maybe the man of lawlessness is the catalyst to the apostasy. Stay tuned. Let's let's talk about this man of lawlessness for a moment. 
this man of lawlessness. And, and let's, let's see if we can figure out who he is, because understanding who the man of lawlessness is will help us understand the apostasy. Now, I know that there is a certain name that many of you might be thinking of in regard to this man of lawlessness, and you might even be waiting for me to, to say it, but you're going to have to wait just a little bit longer because we're not quite ready to make that jump. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. That's okay. You'll, you'll, you'll get clued in here. So our second point is this. The, the, our, our second point is the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Our second prelude to the day of the Lord is that the man of lawlessness must be revealed. It says there in our text in, in, in verse 3, 3C, if you will. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Revealed is, is this word apocalypto, right? We recognize that word. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. The uh, complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, one of my favorite resources, tells us that it means literally to remove a veil or covering, exposing to open view what was before hidden. That's the meaning of the word. To make manifest or reveal a thing previously secret or unknown. It's the same word that Jesus used back in... In um, when 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 he said uh, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire back in Second uh, Thessalonians one and verse seven. Back in chapter two verse three, our text the tense of the verb indicates that this will be a specific time when this person will be made known, their identity revealed. Again, either right before, during, or after the apostasy. But again, who is this man of lawlessness? And man being anthropos, it can mean mankind in the sense of differentiating between God, God's little g gods, right? Angels or animals. But in the text today, the next description, he's identified as a son. So the natural understanding is that he would be a human man. Now, lawlessness is the Greek word anomia. And it refers not to the absence of law, but the violation of law. To transgress the law. In the New Testament, it's understood as breaking laws divinely appointed by God. In First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 4. We read this, John writes, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. There's that word, anomia. And sin is anomia, lawlessness. Which is to say, lawlessness is what? Sin. Sin. Sin here being the word hamartia. And it's an archery term, right? Archery term means miss the mark. You don't hit the bullseye. Right? Of, of God's perfection, you go somewhere else. That's sin. This person now is known as someone who blatantly disobeys God. They spurn God. They are against God. They hate God. They are the opposite of a man of God. And you say, well, yeah, that describes, you know, everyone who's an unbeliever. But for someone in Scripture to have the moniker 
man of lawlessness, man of sin, tells us that that is the primary characteristic of who they are. They are against God in every way, shape, and form. You might say they are, they are wickedness and evil personified. Now just look at the, the next description which goes hand in hand. With this man of lawlessness, we see this again, latter part of verse 3. He's also the son of destruction. The son of destruction. Son of being a Hebraic expression. It simply means to be closely associated with. In scripture, we also see Jesus, right? As the son of man, closely relating himself to people. Destruction, apolia. It means to destroy fully. And again, my, my uh, go-to resource, Complete Word Study Dictionary New Testament, tells us in the New Testament, apolia refers to the state after death wherein exclusion from salvation is a realized fact. Wherein man, instead of becoming what he might have been, is lost and ruined, end quote. Also known as the second death which is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. It's the same word that Jesus used of Judas in his prayer to his father back in John 17 and verse 12, when he prayed, while I was with them, meaning the disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. The son of perdition. Of course, Judas. And perish here, also meaning to fully destroy in an eternal sense, being deprived of eternal life with Christ. Now, the son of destruction, this can be understood in a couple of ways. It can be understood in the sense that this person is an instrument of destruction, someone who seeks destruction, who seeks the destruction of others through wicked deception, as we will see when we get down to verse 10. And he is, at the same time, one who is bound for eternal destruction himself, compliments of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see down in verse 8, that Jesus will slay him with the breath of of his mouth what a picture huh now since we've mentioned so far here down there verse 8 and verse 10 in regard to this description of the man of lawlessness we should also consider something from verse 9 just for a moment if you look down at verse 9 it talks about the one whose excuse me the one who's coming that just also means presence coming means presence meaning the man of lawlessness is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So the key phrase there I want you to focus on for just a moment is that the man of lawlessness will come in accord with the activity of Satan. This phrase, accord with the activity, that's, that's actually one word. It's one Greek word there. It might sound familiar. Energeia. Energeia. It's where we get the word energy from he is energized by satan whose name by the way means adversary and because of this the man of lawlessness then is afforded the power of satan along with the ability 
to perform false signs and wonders. Or signs and false wonders. In other words, miracles. But things that will not be for the glory of God, but rather they will be used to deceive the people. Deceive people. Friends, make no mistake. Make no mistake, Satan is a powerful being. He is. He is a fallen angel from heaven who has been given dominion over the earth by God as part of the consequence of man's sin. And while he can never do anything outside of what God would allow him, he can never do anything without God's permission, if you will, he still has a tremendous amount of power. We see this in, for instance, the story of Job. When God allows Satan to do what he wants to do with Job, with the exception that he cannot physically harm him. And then by Satan's power, he has Job's animals stolen. Uh, Job's servants are slain. His children are killed when the house that they are in, the roof collapses on them by a wind that Satan commanded. He then is given permission by God to inflict Job with physical pain, stopping short of being able to kill him. So by Satan's own power, he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. When Jesus is tempted out in the desert by Satan, Satan offers him all the dominion and glory of all the kingdoms of the world that had been handed over to him by God. And this wasn't, this wasn't a false promise or a lie in the sense that he really does have the power and dominion over the kingdoms of the world and to give them whomever to whomever he wishes, Scripture tells us. Another name for Satan is, of course, devil, which means diabolical one, just referring to his, his evil character and his conduct. Some other names that also refer to Satan are Beelzebul, literally Lord of the Flies, the ruler of the demons, Matthew 12, 24, Belial, which means scoundrel, worthless fellow, 2 Corinthians 6, 6 15, and in Revelation 9, 11, Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek, which means destroyer. Jesus calls him the enemy in Matthew 13, the devil, murderer, liar, and the father of lies in John 8, 44. He is the ruler and God of this world, John 12, 2 Corinthians. In Genesis 3, 1, he is the crafty, deceiving serpent. In uh, Exodus 6, 16, he's the evil one, 1 Thess 3, 5. He's the tempter, 1 Peter 5, 8. He's the adversary prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in Revelation 12, 9, he is the great dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Satan, as prince of the demons, can send his, his minions throughout the world to indwell unbelievers and do his bidding. Satan has the ability to ensnare all unbelievers and hold them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26, he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. And the man of lawlessness, we have to then remember, is energized by Satan with all power and signs 
and false wonders. This then makes the man of lawlessness extremely powerful and extremely dangerous. Now, third on our descriptive list this morning is the fact that this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, demands to be worshipped. He demands it. Look at verse 4 back in our text. This is he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And this goes right along with the activity of Satan. For what did Satan want from Jesus when he was tempting him? He wanted his worship. After Satan promised Jesus all that dominion and glory for all the kingdoms of the world, he said back there in in the Luke passage of verse 7, Therefore, if you worship me, Satan saying to Jesus, If you worship me, excuse me, Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now going back to verse 4 in 2 Thessalonians, First, the man of lawlessness opposes every so-called God, so-called referring to any of the false deities of the day, of the time, or object of worship. Now, let's think about this. You ever wonder why it is that, that we don't have more kind of cool biblical artifacts, you know? That we don't have an actual piece of Noah's Ark, or we don't have... You know, the cross that Jesus was crucified on or, or any of the nails. I think it's no surprise that we don't have these things. Because what would we do with them? We would worship them. We would worship them. You know, they think they have the shroud of Turin, what have you. And, and it gets worshipped. The man of lawlessness exalts himself, lifts himself up, elevates himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Of course, the people buy it. They believe it because in so doing, he has the power of Satan to do those signs and false wonders. So that they're like, this must be why he must be God or maybe he's the Christ. And when people see him perform miracles, what are they going to think? Yes, they're going to think that he's some kind of God. Now, furthermore, as a demonstration of his self-exaltation, his self-deification, it says there in our text, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Satan knows who the one true living God is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. So think about it, right? It makes sense then that the man of lawlessness would return to the temple, that place of God's presence, to make himself known to the world as being this God. Of course, he's not God, but he is displaying himself as being God, of course, this would be the ultimate act of blasphemy for him to go into the temple claiming to be God, especially to the Jews, right? Now, Jesus had something to say about this. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 24. Keep your bookmark here. Go backwards into the Gospels. John, Luke, Mark, Matthew. 
Matthew 24. This is Jesus with his disciples. It's the week before his crucifixion. They have They've left the temple, they've gone outside of Jerusalem, down across the Kidron Valley and up the other side onto the Mount of Olives. And they're actually gazing back and looking at the, the temple there from the Mount of Olives across the valley. And in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, we read this. As he, Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You get this, folks, right? Okay, continuing on. Actually, we're going to jump down um, to verse 23. In verse 23, he says, Along the same lines, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show what great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He's going to mislead unbelievers, but he's even going to go for the elect believers as well. Now we're going to jog back actually to verse 6. I just wanted to tie that little chunk together about the false Christ, the false prophets. But back in Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus continues with them. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. Fall away, right? And will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Just a little side note here. We'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to Second uh, Thessalonians and the mystery of lawlessness in chapter 2. Jesus continues, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Okay, we got to pause here. We got to pause here. We got to turn to Daniel, right? We got to go to this passage that Jesus is quoting from. So you can keep, you know, you got a couple of bookmarks going now, right? So Daniel 9, let's back up to Daniel 9. And we're going to pick up in verse 26. Now, I'm going to tell you on the outset here, my intention is not to exposit this this passage to its kind of fullest uh, entirety. We just would not have the time for that this morning. Rather, I'm going to give you some conclusions based on my study so that you can see some of the connections between this bit of prophecy and 
Paul's prophecy of 2 Thessalonians and Jesus' prophecy of Matthew 24. And as, as we continue in 2 Thessalonians after I return from a couple of weeks and we, and we get back into this, then we will continue to assemble more and more pieces of this bigger picture puzzle of these end times. But it's going to take us a little time to do that. And, and the point there is, man, I want you to have clarity. I want you to understand this clearly. Um, not just in, for the specific future events, but in the big picture sense as well. So, getting back to Daniel. In the book of Daniel, remember that Israel has been carried off to Babylon, where they have been enslaved, they have been held captive by the Babylonians. However, Daniel, though he is a Jew, has risen to prominence because of his wisdom and his ability to interpret dreams. At the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel prays a prayer of confession on behalf of the Jewish people. And in return, the Lord sends the angel Gabriel to enlighten Daniel as to the vision he previously had and how it relates to the future of Israel. Now we're in, uh, that's verses uh, 24 to 27. Now, now we're at 24 to 27, excuse me. Uh, I'm getting myself here. Hold on. There we go. Yeah. In these verses, Gabriel refers to weeks, okay, which is actually translated as units of seven. And it's commonly understood as units of seven years, one week equaling seven years. We could look at chapter 10 and see why that is and the, the difference of days versus years, but Again, we're going to press on here for the time being. The Messiah Jesus is introduced in verse 25, having showed up after a specified amount of time going back to the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Now we're picking up, actually we're going to pick up in verse 26. We read this, Daniel 9, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks... Or in parentheses, we're going to say 434 years. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's in reference to his crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come. You could underline that, right? That's going to tie in with our man of lawlessness. The prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now take note of this prince who is to come and the fact that he and his people will do what? Destroy the city and the what? The sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27. And he, meaning the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Again, seven years. But in the middle of the week, well, it's halfway, three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, in parentheses here, I'm adding, because the Jews will have started their sacrificial system back up, okay? And on the wing of abominations, abominations just means, the word means repugnant, or that which is detestable, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Wow. After 
this abominable, detestable, loathsome person stops Jewish worship, making desolate the Jewish sacrificial system, they will eventually undergo their own destruction at the hand of another. Who do you think that might be at the hand of the Messiah? Go ahead and turn to Daniel 11. You might not have to. It's right. It should be right there. Actually, I'm going to turn one page, I think, in mine. Daniel 11. Daniel 11, the context, we're going to pick up in verse 31. The context is, is in reference to a person known as the king of the north. And in chapter 11, verse 31, this king of the north, he and his army arrive at the Jewish temple. And it says this, Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. So we keep seeing this phrase repeated. Skip down to verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Sounding familiar from the other passages that we're looking at? Now, as is sometimes the case with Old Testament prophecy, there can be what we call a, a near future fulfillment of prophecy and there can also be a far future fulfillment in the case of daniel here the near future was fulfilled in a syrian persecutor of israel known as antiochus four epiphanes a greek hellenistic king who ruled the seleucid empire he invaded jerusalem back in 167 or 168 BC, terrorizing and killing many, and he desecrated the temple. And some have even said that he did so by sacrificing pigs on the altar, and then setting up his own version of worship to the Greek gods, even possibly erecting a statue of Zeus. Now, that again is that near future fulfillment of Daniel 11. One last passage in Daniel, turn to Daniel 12 one my bible is just one page over daniel 12 and we're going to look at verses 11 to 13 right there at the end this is most likely still gabriel continuing to encourage daniel by summarizing some of the last day's events picking up in verse 11 and now he's He's switching back and we're understanding this as days, as in actual days, okay? Picking up in verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Guess how much time that is? Three and a half years. What happens at that point? The return of Jesus to earth. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. You go, whoa, wait a minute, time out. He just went from 1290 to 1335. 
Yes, he did. And we'll have to talk about that another time as to what those extra 45 days are for. I have an idea of what I think happens there. But again, that'll be for another time. Verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So as Gabriel closes things out, he tells Daniel that Daniel will one day die, but in the future be resurrected and receive his allotted portion when the Messiah returns, which is at the end of all of this. Turn to Revelation 13. Turn to Revelation 13. At the end of all this, we'll kind of synthesize, summarize, okay? Because I know this is a lot to take in right now. Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, we meet somebody called the beast. The beast. We're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 13, looking at verses 1 to 8. The Apostle John writes this. This is the vision given to him by the Lord Jesus of future events. And he says this in Revelation 13 and verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Who do you think the dragon is? Satan. Satan. We find that out back in chapter 12 verse 9. So the dragon, Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. It's cool to see all these similarities here, huh? Right. Even the the mouth like a lion, because Satan is what a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The beast is given power by Satan. Verse three. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. It's one of the miracles that we will see with this person that they actually die and then are resurrected. They come back to life. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Uh, Guess how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name is not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Meaning those will not worship Him. But everyone else will worship Him. Now, as a future fulfillment of that abomination of desolation, just to jog back for a sec here, 
talked about that near fulfillment in Tychus Epiphanes, as a future fulfillment of this abomination of desolation. Some would say, well, that actually happened in 70 AD by the future Roman emperor Titus. I would say that that wasn't possible for a few reasons. One, the timeline of Daniel 9 and 12, 13 just don't allow for it. Secondly, Paul sees the man of lawlessness as being someone in the future because shortly after he comes to power, what happens? Jesus returns and slays him. That obviously didn't happen in 70 AD. Thirdly, John writes Revelation 13 after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which would indicate he still sees the beast and the worship of him as still being in the future. And like Paul, he too recounts how the beast will be slain. And then four, Jesus back there in Matthew 24 clearly shows more global cataclysmic events that take place from the time of the abomination of desolation until his return shortly thereafter. It doesn't just concern the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, as we start to wind things down here, let's just take a moment, like I said, to kind of synthesize and summarize what we know from these passages. We know this, that after the rapture, But before the day of the Lord comes, that's Jesus's physical return back to earth. We have this person identified in our Daniel passages as the prince who is to come. Jesus identifies him as a false Christ. Paul identifies him as the man of lawlessness. And John in Revelation identifies him as the beast. Synthesizing the five scripture passages we looked at then, it's clear these are all referring to the same person. Furthermore, this person is empowered by Satan himself and given the ability to do signs and false wonders, even resurrecting from the dead. So he shows up on the world stage to lead a rebellion against God, starting with the Jews and the temple. And in fact, he stops the Jews, regular sacrifices. He goes into the temple, he desecrates it, and he sets up his own system of worship with, guess who is the main deity? Himself. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, this again, is what is called the abomination of desolation. It's also known as the apostasy. His rebellion against God. He has authority over the whole world and through wicked deception gathers all unbelievers as worshipers for himself, even trying to to, um, deceive the saints before making war with them. And he does this over a three and a half year period known as the Great Tribulation. At the end of this three and a half years, the Lord Jesus Christ then again bodily returns to earth and slays him once and for all. Amen? Now there's still a word I haven't used here. Have you noticed that? There's a word that kind of becomes a name for this this person that I know many of you are thinking about, and you're like, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? Guess what? I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Not this week anyway. Not this week. Why not? It's not in the text. It's not in the text. 
there is mention of this word in some texts, and we'll, we'll get to those. We'll get to those. Maybe next couple of weeks from now, whatever. Remember verse 5 we looked at last week. We read it again today back in Second Thessalonians. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You know, what, what's, what's important about this for us is, is back then they, they had the Apostle Paul, right? They had the Apostle Paul. And he was sharing these things with them, everything that he wanted them to know that they needed to know. But, but us, we have what? We don't have the Apostle Paul. We have the Word of God in its completed canon of Scripture, right? Friends, we, we need to not forsake this. We need to not neglect it. Like the people were forgetting the things maybe that Paul had shared with them. We have to not forget. We shouldn't forget, right? Because we have the blessing of having this, this right here with us. And, and remember too, because we, we have to understand well, what's the point of all this and what we've learned this morning. All of these things that we talked about this morning come before the rapture, right? So as believers, we are spared from the man of lawlessness. We understand the rapture can happen any time, any time. This is the part of Jesus' return we don't know. We don't know when it's coming. It's imminent. It could happen any moment right now. We're all still here. If it happened, that's a bad sign. Well, right now, still here, right now. And I hope, I hope I don't look out and there's nobody out there. Boy, that would really stink. <laughs> As believers, though, we are spared. Because of the rapture, we get to go to be with Christ. Even if we are dead, we have died as a believer. We're with him in the clouds. And so therefore we are spared from the man of lawlessness. We are spared from the apostasy and the great tribulation. We are spared, friend, from God's judgment and wrath that he will be pouring out upon the earth and all who reject him. We only have to look forward to the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord in the sense of when he returns back to the earth, being able to live and dwell eternally with Christ. Well, we know that when we're raptured, we'll live with him eternally at that point and forevermore. So, so, so what does this all tell us and remind us of? If this all happens, say, in our lifetime, you know, the rapture and then these other events start taking place, there will be people, right? There would be people that need to know the Lord. I mean, may this, may this spur us on. May this excite us. May this be of great influence on us to get the word of God out to people who need to hear it. The lost. That, that if it were to happen, that those lost who are going to be now just like, what's happening? What's going on? There will still be time for them before Jesus actually returns to earth to repent. But wouldn't it be awesome if they knew the gospel? If they had heard the gospel and start putting those pieces of the puzzle together, our heart should be one that we don't want any to perish like, like the Lord, but that all would come to repentance. So let us use this to spur us on, to spur us on towards sharing the gospel 
with an unbelieving lost world. And then, and then, and then lastly, I, I introduced these, these five points back uh, when we were talking about the day of the Lord previously, and I, I think we can't emphasize them enough, and just to kind of reiterate them very quickly. But, but it's that whole understanding of why is this important? Why is prophecy important? Okay, yeah, I get it. We're, we're, we need to evangelize and stuff, but, you know, we're going to be gone too. You know, we're going to be gone. We're going to be with the Lord. But we have to remember the Bible prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign. It reminds us that God is sovereign in this crazy mixed up world we live in, right? We have God's promises, his rock solid, airtight promises that he is sovereign, he wins, and because he wins, we all win. Secondly, Bible prophecy reminds you, it should remind you that God is good, that God is so very good. This world is not all there is, friends. There's a world, an awesome, incredible world that awaits us. And God makes that so very clear, and he makes it very clear that our greater good is, is his desire. Thirdly, Bible prophecy motivates you to holy living. It should. It should motivate you and I to holy living, because in light of Jesus' return, his imminent return, we, we want to be found faithful living for him. Do we not? I don't want to be ashamed. Oh, Lord, if I had known you were coming, I would have done something different no we want it we want to be ready lord come lord jesus come i'm ready right fourthly bible prophecy helps you to establish proper priorities it should help you establish proper priorities in other words friend do you live with an eternal perspective do you live this life in light of god's coming kingdom do you believe it are you living for it and lastly bible prophecy gives us hope it should give you hope, right? This is, this is good for ourselves. It's good news for ourselves and for others when they see you living with hope through life's trials and tribulations, the hope of what is to come. And that can be a great witnessing tool. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for your tremendous promises we thank you that as believers we know that we look forward to being with christ when he returns to the clouds to rapture his church and lord may all of these things we've learned today spur us on towards sharing the gospel with others and to be reminded how amazing and how awesome your prophecy is lord if there are any out there this morning that need to have a saving relationship with jesus christ lord that they would know and understand in their heart of hearts they are a sinner who needs a savior the savior is jesus that he went to the cross on their behalf he died on their behalf lord and then three days later went into the ground but resurrecting from the dead so that they could be forgiven of their sins if they would repent and believe repent and believe and receive the promise of eternal life i pray they would do that right now while we're praying lord that there might be some that would repent and believe, put their faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.